Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. I'll keep it tied up the top because I have nothing to plug. It's very unusual for me that I have nothing to plug, uh, but I'm not touring this year. Well, um, in the next few months at the very least, so uh, nothing to plug. Probably I could just spend less time telling you that I have nothing to plug. I could actually take the absence of things to plug and just not even mention that I don't have things to plug. It's probably as annoying to hear me talking about the fact that I have no things to plug as it would be annoying to hear me about talking about the things that I have to plug. Now, actually, now that I've started talking, I realize I do have things to plug. I have other podcasts. I have one called Tofop I do with my friend Charlie. I have one called Fofop that I do occasionally with other people. There's going to be a new episode coming up with Dave Anthony soon. We're going to talk about what's going on in America and what's going on in Australian politics. So uh, that's one to look out for soon. And of course, um, I have an AFL podcast called Two Guys, One Cup with Charlie as well. So if you're an AFL football fan or if you're a fan of the game of AFL football, but of a podcast where we rarely talk about AFL football and mostly talk about socks and, you know, which player's got the coolest hair and stuff like that, then that might be the sort of podcast for you. Speaking of football... Today's guest is uh, Neralee Meadows. Now, uh, at the end of this podcast, we talk about the AFL football show, uh, which is uh, has, is no more. Uh, in between us recording this podcast and it coming out, um, the, the show is not on television anymore. So there's a little reference to that at the end. For anyone who's uh, wondering why uh, I don't mention the, the show... Uh, and, uh, we don't talk about, you know, obviously the fact that it's not on anymore. It's because this podcast was recorded, uh, before that, but it's a great, great podcast. I really enjoyed sitting down with Nerily and hearing her story. And, uh, I think you're really going to enjoy it too. So, uh, thank you very much for listening. Always appreciate it. If you like the podcast, share it on iTunes or wherever you listen to it, you know, rate it, subscribe. I don't, I, I actually don't know how any of those things work, but I hear other people on other podcasts say rate it and subscribe. So I'm assuming that it actually does something. I actually don't know if it does. It, it, it may be just a common myth that everybody in podcasting has that somehow rating and subscribing helps, but maybe it does. I don't know. What the fuck do I know? Anyway, this has been today's intro. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. I'm very excited actually to have uh, our guest on today. Uh, she's somebody that I have uh, admired her work for quite a long time and uh, I don't know her very well though. And so uh, I always like these ones where uh, not only are the listeners going to get to know you a little bit, but I'm also going to get to know you a little bit. So that's really cool. Uh, the podcast always starts like this. I just ask the guests who they are. So who are you? Um, I'm Narrowly. I'm Narrowly Meadows. Um, I'm a sports broadcaster and I find it funny that you say you've admired me for a long time because I remember watching you probably your oh, 20 odd years ago when mum took us to, I think it was UWA at the Octagon or something in there doing stand up comedy. Mum was a big fan of yours and, uh, and we were big fans of yours because of it. So I think I win that competition of admiration from afar. That's how old I am now. Narrowly, <laughs> is that, like, I just people do say to me quite a lot, my mum. 
mum's mom. a big fan of yours. <laughs> no, but mum was quite cool in that aspect. So that was actually pretty good. And I did just do a talk with a bunch of uni students. So I'm feeling very old myself. It, it happened to me during the comedy festival this year. There were these young people, 19, 20 in the front row. And I'm like, I'm talking to them and I'm, you know, because I've done the festival 23 years. And so I'm like, you know, they weren't even born when I started doing the festival. So I'm talking to them and I'm like, yeah, what brings you here? And they, they were like, oh yeah, mum, our mum used to bring us when we were like 13, <laughs> but we've kept coming. And I was like, okay, well, that's, that's good. Good on the mum. So I appreciate that. Uh, now I, I do want to start though with an apology because I've been thinking about this quite a lot. Uh, and it, I, it, I'm a person who often gets like caught up in a little moment that perhaps you probably don't even remember, but like in my head, I've replayed it over and over a bunch of times. It was a uh, grand final day last year. We were in the uh, September club uh, after the, after the game and uh, where the real highlights happened. Exactly. <laughs> and everybody was having a bit of a drink and I am terrible if I see someone out of context. So like, you know, I'm pretty good at like knowing who someone is if I see them where they're meant to be. But when I see somebody and I'm not expecting, and I'm pretty sure I introduced myself to you and you said, yeah, we've met like three times. And I was like. Which I hate people yeah. who do do that, but I'm like, we've kind of sort of worked together yeah. a few times. So it's a little bit awkward now. And I love the fact that for you out of context is I was still at a sporting function. Yeah. Well, admittedly. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's part of why I am like, when I walk it back, I go, yeah, probably should have. <laughs> But but I met you through some people that weren't well. You were with some people who weren't sports. But look, now related. I'm on the podcast. Exactly. So look how far we've gone. Exactly. So who are you again? No, <laughs> no. So you are a, a, a sports journalist, and uh, you were you were talking about the fact that you were talking to some kids today. And uh, can we start there? Because I I'm really interested in that. University students were they journalism students? Yeah, journalism students. Now, wh- what do you say to a bunch of university journalism students? Because it's I was a university journalism student and uh, even back then it was kind of a brave thing to do with your life. There wasn't a lot of jobs in journalism back then and there seems to be a lot less now than there was when I did my journalism degree. So what do you say to these these young people? It was actually really fun. They were just asking me questions that they wanted to know and um – and it, yeah, it, it was actually really enjoyable. I still find it weird talking about myself, to be honest, because I'm not sure that I'm that interesting. Um, and so I will be halfway through a story and sort of look up to make sure that people are still actually listening. One of them yawned. I think it was because he was tired. I don't think it was me because he asked some really good questions, but it still put me off a little bit. Um, and one of them asked me about Game of Thrones because I had just uploaded an Instagram story the night before because... Um, I only just started watching it a couple of weeks ago um, because everyone else obviously talks about it all the time and I finally caved and I've gotten to episode, uh, sorry, series three, episode nine, and that's The Red Wedding. And for anyone who has watched Game of Thrones knows that that is probably one of the most brutal pieces of television in the history of the universe and I'm still recovering. So there were all sorts of questions. I mean, that to me is also an interesting thing because there was a time like where everybody went through that at the same time, yeah, you know, that was kind of part of the the zeitgeist. And Game of Thrones is kind of one of those shows that still people watch a little in real time. You know, we live in the age of binging. It's appointment viewing. Like at, they, they, it's like married at first sight. There's very few things that people actually go, I need to watch this when it happens because it's like live sport. Twitter will ruin it if you don't or the real world or radio or whatever. Like you say, very few uh, things like that actually exist anymore. And it must be weird to watch that in in isolation, you know, like you're just like, I need to talk to somebody about the red wedding, but everybody else has moved on. Right, that's 
exactly what I said in my in this Instagram story. I'm like, how have you people lived your last six lives having watched that? Like, how are you okay? Mm. Well, spoiler alert, strap yourself in. There's <laughs> more. It's, it doesn't get any happier. <laughs> I've been told this. But um, no, what did I say to journalism students? Basically, try not to be a dick, um, be kind to people and be a human being and work really hard. That's kind of how I feel about it. Okay. Well, that's actually a pretty good place to ask you the big question that we ask on this podcast, and then we'll talk about everything else through the prism of that. But do you have a philosophy to life, to work, to love, to something? Yeah, I have I have a lot of little catchphrases in life. My mum used to tease me about the fact that I was a walking coffee book table <laughs> because I'd just come up with these lines. But I think, you know how your mum always used to say, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Uh-huh. And I decided when I was a teenager that I was going to change that because I think if you have something nice to say, make sure you say it. So many people don't say the nice things that cross their mind, whether it's like, hey, I really like that girl's dress or um, that was a great story that you did, whatever it is, they think it and then often it gets wrapped up in jealousy or it gets wrapped up in feeling uncomfortable saying nice things to people. And and I just think that's so sad. I, I like to live by the theory of if you think it, say it. Um, and it's gotten me into trouble a few times. Like people have thought I've been hitting on them but when I wasn't hitting on them. I was just saying really nice dress. Like for a while there, I took it so seriously that I would cross the street to like tell someone I really like your dress. Unfortunately, they think you're a creepo, not a nice person. But I think that's also kind of a sad indictment of society that it's so rare to actually say nice things to strangers. Um, and so that's probably my philosophy. I really love it. I love it. Absolutely dig this so much because I, I am constantly amazed at both how, how many times I think something nice about somebody and then all the barriers that are in my mind Mm -hmm. about letting them know that thing. It makes people's day when you say it. And don't get me wrong, I will never give a compliment that I don't mean. I mm. really won't. And often it gets, once again, gets me into trouble because I walk into the commentary box or whatever and say, hey, nice shirt. And then one of the other guys say, oh, you didn't say anything about my shirt. Yeah. Well, and I don't I said, like your well, shirt. <laughs> yeah. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I just, I think we'd just be so much better as a society if we just said all the nice things in, instead of being wrapped up in, in the jealousy or the awkwardness of it all. It's, it, it, I had an example of this. It, it just links into Game of Thrones. So I'll, I'll tell you, I'll <laughs> tell you this. Everything does once you start watching it. So, uh, a, a, a young, younger writer, I actually don't know how, how old she is, but I, somebody who's an emerging writer who I follow on Twitter and is, uh, has, has, ended up writing for a whole bunch of those sort of, you know, publications like your junkies and these sort of new media publications. And she had written this article around uh, Game of, uh, around, oh, hang on now, it was around Aya Stark and Game of Thrones and an event that had happened that was quite significant in this yeah, final no, no series. Spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> uh, but her interpretation of something that I had watched mm. And then her reasoning and her justification and her, you know, the way that she had thought it through, I I loved it. It was such a great piece. And normally in that situation, what I would do is, uh, yeah, I might retweet it or I might like, you know, sort of add a comment and say, hey, this is a really cool piece, you know, read this or whatever. But I was like, you know what, I'm actually going to, you know, she follows me on Twitter. I follow her on Twitter. I can probably send her a private message 
But then I was like, I, you, you suddenly, the barriers start coming mm-hmm. up in your mind. It's like the you know, the opening scene of, you know, Get Smart. You know, suddenly you know, all these shutters start going, well, oh, you don't want to really be direct messaging a, a young woman on the internet or you don't want to like, you know, like how yeah. do you be? So I was like, no, 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 no. Don't like, just do it in an appropriate way. Mm. So I was like, you know what? I won't just message and say that I liked it. I'll think about why I liked it and then I'll message and say, here are the reasons that I liked what you wrote. And, you know, here's the deeper appreciation I got of that episode of that TV show because of what you had written, which was actually what I thought. Mm. You know, she had given me the gift of, um, and I hadn't meant to say this when I originally wrote the message, but I realized the natural thing to say at the end was to say thank you because Mm. I'd realized I was grateful. I am grateful that I had read the article because it had given me a deeper appreciation of something that I already enjoyed. And then that would have been fine if that were just it. But then her response to that was also just so lovely. And, you know, and then I was like, well, that took me no time at all. But it's interesting with the, also the the next step of the conversation that you just took is, is arguments and, um, and the way that we think about things and the way that we perceive arguments. And I think we are in a generation of, we want to win arguments. And that is not how I think about it. If I love losing arguments because it means I've learned something new and so often people listen to respond instead of listening to understand. And I reckon that's where we've got a lot of the bigotry and the hate that goes on at the moment, particularly on social media, but in the broader world as well, is because we don't listen to understand anymore. I love being wrong. I really do. I mean, it doesn't happen often, but <laughs> but, but when you walk away and you go, huh, I never thought of it like that. I just think that's the greatest gift in the world. Not Not only just that, and I absolutely agree with what you're saying, but also just the futility of the idea that you will actually change somebody's mind or that you will win an argument by being on the attack. Mm. Like the amount of times that particularly online, but I think it's, you know, it is certainly seeped over into the broader media. This idea of you get two people with completely opposing opinions to just yell at each other for an hour and it achieves nothing. Neither of them is going to walk away from it at the end and go, oh, you know what? He actually... By the eighth time he yelled at me, I really did actually get through. I have changed my mind. It, 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 it's like two sporting teams who lose every week and they just keep going out with the exact same game plan. Yeah. It's not helping. It's not winning. It's not changing people over to your side of the argument. Have you always been a person who has been able to listen to opposing points of view? Yeah, I grew up... Um... My mum's side of the family in particular was very academic and very vocal. And so we, there was always a lot of, um, dinner time conversations whenever we were with the extended family of, you know, philosophical conversations. And, um, and so I was brought up in a space where you could argue your point, but it was in a, um, and a mature and responsible way of doing so. And look, the people threw tanties every now and again, like they're, they're human, but I did really learn the art of discussion from an early age and that it was okay to be wrong or to not know something. Um, and you know, this is pre Google on your smartphone. So people actually discussed stuff and had knowledge coming in instead of just going, I don't know, let's look it up. Um, but yeah, so I, th- I think I was really lucky in, in that space. Uh, what, what did your 
uh, what's your family situation? I, this is not one of those. It's not sixty minutes, <laughs> so you know, there's nothing. You know, there's no questions with agendas on this podcast. <laughs> um, but uh, like, uh, you, you've mentioned mum already, so uh, it's, it's a very. Um, uh, what do we say? Traditional family, uh-huh. um, mum, dad, still together, married for oh, 45 odd years. Um, how many kids? Three. So I've got two big brothers and I always say big brother and little sister. I never say older and younger, which at 33, I probably should grow up, but I still see myself as little sister. No, I like it. Big brother, <laughs> little sister is good. Um, yeah. Dad, dad grew up in the country. He was, um, a doctor, GP, um, but, uh, country Western Australia? Yeah, um, in a little coal mining town called Collie. So dad was the only doctor that um, did obstetrics at the time that I was born. So I was born at home with just mum and dad and my brother sleeping in the other room. Um, and any of my mates who were born in Collie around my time were delivered by dad as well. Uh, mum was, they met at med school, um, but mum ended up going into her more psychology, psychiatry um, enjoyed the mental health side of things more than, than being a, a GP. Um, yeah. That's interesting to me. So I, I'm always quite fascinated by the idea when somebody has a parent who is in the mental health field of whether that means that you are raised with like a really good appreciation of, you know, mental health or whether it goes the other way. I was the seven-year-old watching episodes of The Bill having my mother say, but you don't know what they went through as a child. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, I had an epiphany a couple of years ago that I worked out that I'd been self-analyzing since I was about five years old and it is bloody exhausting. And I can tell you when most other people in the world don't do the same thing, you end up taking a lot of accountability for yourself that other people don't know how to do. But I'm so grateful for it because reframing and, and things like that, it's a really positive and powerful way of thinking, but it, it can also, like I remember once I was about seven or eight and I turned to mum in the car and I was in a real mood and I said to her, I don't want you to fix things. I just want to vent. (laughs) And so mum worked it out that there were times where just shut up. Well, I mean, that is, but that is, I mean, to be able to say those things that we often are all feeling, to be able to put them into words. Totally, yeah. You know, I mean, I imagine it can often be confronting because as you said, not everybody is doing that. And I imagine to people who aren't constantly self-evaluating and, and I think in the general world, there are plenty of people who either aren't self-evaluating or don't give the appearance that they're self-evaluating because you never know what is actually going on in someone's mind. But as someone myself who lives a lot of my life inside my own head and you know, is constantly, I mean, as you can tell from the fact that I've hung on to the the fact that I didn't know who you were at a thing (laughs) seven months ago, that's still been bothering me constantly. You may have forgotten that it even happened. You may notice that uh, sometimes I'm a little self-critical in my... I'm the same though. I mean, I I really trouble, I I suck at getting into trouble. Like when my name was on the board at school, I, you know, like general sort of gasps around the classroom and I would, I would lose sleep over it. My dad was never a yeller. Um, so I really struggled with all those sort of things. And for some reason, still to this day, when a boss asks to see me, I assume it's because I'm in trouble, not for good things. I don't know what that is. Oh, narrowly. I, I, we do, we don't know each other very well, but I feel like we're going to get <laughs> on very, <laughs> very well. <laughs> this is, I am exactly the same. I've had to actually say to my manager, if you ring me and you leave a message, <laughs> you've got to tell me that it's a it's good so thing true. or it's an okay thing. 
don't just leave me a message. If you just leave me a message that says ring back, I assume something terrible has happened. It's so true. And I don't know why because I never got into trouble. So I'm not a troublemaker. I don't know why that's my natural predisposition of somebody's calling me, they're mad at me. So I think what that has meant for me is, and I offer this myself first, is that- Are you going to bill me after this? I (laughs) I don't think that I'm very good at- Um, necessarily confrontation or healthy confrontation in the way that I haven't developed those skills of being able to have a productive argument or, you know, sometimes I will avoid confrontation because I don't feel happy there. Often I'm a person who quite often gets in trouble, you know, for things that I've said or, you know, and I think that people perhaps assume that I, that I don't care about those things, but I hate being in trouble. Mm. I hate when people, you know, uh, think that I've done the wrong thing. And I certainly will often subjugate my own feelings in, you know, in a work relationship or a life relationship to avoid that confrontation. Have you been able to be what you are, but then develop healthy ways of still, you know, having those arguments or having those serious discussions? Yeah, I think I'm in a weird way. I'm kind of good at confrontation when it escalates because I'm really good at staying calm. Um, I think you know, dad being a doctor and stuff like that, maybe I just got genetics of in an emergency, stay calm. Um, so when somebody, you know, yells or gets really, I'm, I'm actually quite good at, you know, put your calm voice on and try and let's work through this. Um, but I'm not very good at standing up for myself. I tend to, um, I tend to cave pretty quickly and do the whole nails digging into the fingers under the table. And I'm just a little country girl. I'm in over my head right now. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Um, so yeah, I think I'm much better at standing up for people around me and my friends. Like I, I, yeah, could do any of that sort of stuff. But when it comes to sitting in a boss's office and it's just me, I immediately just feel like a child. Oh, righteous on behalf of others is my favorite thing in the world (laughs) because I've got all the skills, but I find it very hard to be righteous on behalf of myself. But if somebody else is wronged and then I can just fire it up, I'm so ready for that situation. (laughs) But I also think it's hard as a comedian because I mean, when your whole like shtick your entire life has been making people laugh, like I like to try and make people laugh occasionally because it makes you feel good because I'm a normal human being. But when you're doing it for your job and your livelihood, it, I feel like it'd be a bit like an addiction. Like you, you need to keep getting the next laugh and the next laugh. And then you deconstruct jokes and everything that's funny and humorous in the world is a deconstruction of why it's funny. And, you know, I often joke about the year that I did it before the game. The fact is if I said something funny, which was rare, but like none of them would laugh, they'd say, oh, that's funny. Because yeah. <laughs> comedians deconstruct. They don't go, ha, ha, no. ha, ha. And then I'm the opposite where I have the most loud, obnoxious laugh that some people hate and some people love. So that's why comedians love me. Uh, comedians do love you and <laughs> and never be ashamed of having a loud laugh. I know that uh, when we, we may or may not talk about the footy show. We'll plug it. Definitely watch the footy show. Uh, but um, but we don't have to, uh, you know, get into it. But I know after the first episode, one of the bits of feedback was that people were like, didn't enjoy your laugh. And nothing or makes... said it was fake. Yeah, or too loud or whatever. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? One of the things that annoys me the most, if I'm ever in like a room and like you're doing a show and someone's laughing louder than everybody else, sometimes I'll see a comedian have a go at that person. Mm. In my mind, I'm like, no, no, no. 
that's the level everyone should be at. Yeah. That, that person's the star. How can I get everybody else to be laughing at the same level as that person? Yeah, I just, what am I, fr- I mean, because my laugh to me is really personal, so it's hard yeah. not to take it personally. And my mom's got a really loud laugh. My brother, like we're all the same. Um, and I think it was really cool that in our household it was encouraged and, you know, and, and it was a good thing. And one of my friends actually said to me, because I was feeling a little bit down about all that, and one of my friends said to me, if the worst thing that they're saying about you is that they're angry at your joy, yep. then you're doing okay. Right. And and that was, you know, that was nice to hear that. Um, but and, yeah. and you know what? Like even out of those two emotions, if you're being joyful and they're being angry, don't let the person who's angry yeah. stop you from being joyful. Yeah. And it's just, I, it's just who I am. So I can't change it anyway. Nor it's, should you. Like, I mean, I, a lot of the times I put my hand over my mouth because it, I, I, I know how loud I'm being and I'm that girl in the pub that everyone's looking at going, whoa, that must've been funny. Um, but I, I don't want to change that because, you know, I, I like the fact that I see the joy in things and probably one of the nicest things that, um, somebody ever said to me, was, um, Rob Sitch after an episode of Have You Been Paying Attention? Because on that as well, every time I do something like this, people either go, oh my God, I love her laugh. It makes me laugh. Or people go, oh, it's so annoying. Get her to shut up. And when Rob saw I was a bit uncomfortable by the feedback, he sort of said to me, you can tell a lot about somebody's emotional intelligence by what the jokes that they laugh at. And and that was a really lovely thing for somebody like of his ilk in this country to, to say it, it felt very reassuring. Uh, also, you know what? Sometimes laughter is part of you being part of a team. You know, like yeah. the, the thing that people who are outside our world don't understand is that often, you know, part of the, the joy, the momentum, you know, the netball equivalent of saying here, here if you need is being the person who's enjoying somebody else's work. Yeah. The idea that you don't just appreciate your own work, that you're not waiting for that moment to jump in for what you're doing, but that you're being the wind beneath somebody else's wings while they're doing their work and, and it, making their contribution, I think is is an undervalued thing and sometimes something that perhaps, even if you know it doesn't always translate to particular people in the audience, is always appreciated by the people who are making, you know, the piece of entertainment with you. Um, tell me about uh, the idea of working with comedians because you touched on that. And I think that's really <laughs> an interesting perspective from the outside because you said something really uh, I thought was great, which is absolutely comedians, if they think something's really funny, will say that's funny rather than laugh. And you um, see their brain going. <laughs> the only time that I ever really laugh, laugh is when if I go to see a comedy show I'll intentionally go and see things that are so far removed from what it is that I do so that my brain isn't analyzing. It's like watching sport. I I love, you know, when I get to go and watch a sporting game that I don't actually have to report Mm -hmm. on, it is so joyful (laughs) because it's so rare, right? Because you do, you sit there and you're looking at the news angles and the highlights and who did well and who didn't do well and what. So I get it. I understand the deconstructing of something for everyone else is just joyous. So I I wanted an outside perspective on uh, what it's like to work around comedians and you can be as mean as you want to be by... (laughs) By the way, in no. this regard, what because what is it like to be a a non comedian but amongst you know a whole bunch of comedians? What are your impressions? I mean, I love it. It's so, some of my greatest friends in Melbourne are comedians who I've worked with. Um, Mickey Malloy, for example, is one of the most genuine, wonderful human beings and friends that I've ever come across. Um, 
uh, he's just the type of person that if I was ever in trouble and I couldn't get a hold of my family, I know I could, you know, call him. Um, and uh, I th- think he, yeah, people like that. And I think comedians also really understand how, uh, you know, how hard it is to make something look effortless that's taken a lot of work. Um, and, you know, as a sports reporter, but also like female, I think there's a pretty good un- appreciation um, and often the comedian is that sort of underdog sort of person as well, self-deprecating. Um, so I definitely, yeah, I have, I have good friendships with a lot of comedians in, in Australia. Plus I've, you know, I've got the laugh, so they just want to hang out with me because I'll laugh so much. I mean, yes, that is absolutely a bonus. <laughs> no doubt about that. Uh, okay. So the other thing is, and look, you know, again, I'm sure you've been asked these sort of questions a million times and I certainly don't want to end up, you know, having a conversation with you about things that you've been over a million times. But, you know, obviously you are a female sports journalist and particularly, you know, working in the the football world where, you know, it has been predominantly male journalists, not exclusively. There's some very well-respected and, you know, uh, long-established, you know, uh, female AFL journalists in particular. I mean, Caroline Wilson, who we have mentioned many times that one day we're going to get Carol on the podcast. I'd love to get Carol on the great. podcast. Um, yeah, I've been a huge admirer of her, but not just just her. We had Sam Lane on, who was yeah one of my favourite guests that we've ever had on the show. And uh, um, yeah, there's been a long line of them. Uh, what was it about sports journalism that was interesting to you and who were your sort of heroes or role models when you started? Yeah, I mean, you're right. There's still we still need to get a lot more women involved. I had someone actually recently say to me, oh, it's a woman's world now. You know, you need to strike while the iron's hot, blah, blah, blah. And I just turned around and I said, pretty sure there are still more players named Jack in the AFL than women on sports broadcasting (laughs) covering the game. So we're not quite there yet. It is amazing, like, that even in the last five years, like, it feels like, you know, you're like, it would be weird now to have a show that doesn't have a female journalist involved in it or a female presenter involved in it. Uh, But that said, it's still often, you know, the one out of the, you know, and then there's 20 blokes. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's changed a lot in the time that I've been doing it. I was really lucky that I had some awesome women, um, Tanya Armstrong and Katie Price, who remain really good friends of mine who I was working with or they were at a different channel back in Perth. So I had really good women friends around me. Um, I was also lucky that I always had really strong women in my life who loved sport. My nana loved cricket. She would always talk about the Invincibles and, you know, the Boxing Day test, watching it with her was always super special. So it was never not normal for me. Um, But also, like, my dad... You know, you talk about the challenges and stuff like that. My dad is really quiet um, and, you know, so he's he wasn't one to sort of engage in conversation too much anyway. But often little boys, you know, their dads will just automatically talk about sport to them or whatever. You know, they don't – they didn't, when I was a kid, talk to their daughters the same way. And it wasn't out of being rude or whatever. It just wasn't, you know, inverted commas normal. Um, and so my love – the sport came, like I had to chase it. I had to ask the questions. I remember being, you know, a a six or seven year old sort of going, what's LBW? You know, it was my thirst for the hunger because you often, when I first started, you'd often get blokes going, well, you've never played and you don't understand and you don't do all this. So how could you possibly have better knowledge than me? 
And I'd sit there and, and my response to that would be, I had to chase it. I had to look for it. I had my, it was my passion that went out there and, and went, this is what I want to do. It got given to you on a platter. Why does that make you better than me? Um, and luckily it's changed now that, I mean, it's almost become like this cool thing for dads to, you know, play footy with their daughters and stuff, which is really awesome how much it's changed. But hopefully my seven-year-old niece never has, you know, to put up with the sort of stuff that we had to put up with 30 years ago. It's, it's incredible how much it's changed and it, it gives me great hope that, you know, the, the, the power of change can happen quickly once it happens, Yeah, that often it takes so long of people knocking on the door or trying to knock down the wall. But once they do that, that, that then the progress can actually be quite quick. Yeah. It becomes normal very quickly. I mean, you look at all the players in the AFL now, there's maybe half a dozen left that are older than me. So every other player, I was there first, you know, <laughs> so, you know, you have Sam Walsh who gets picked up number one last year and I happened to be hosting the AFL draft and he got up there and he went, hi, Nearly. And I went, oh, wow, this has changed now. Right. They know me before I know them. And it was a real sort of moment where I went, oh, this is interesting. So they're all normal. They all think it's, you know, they don't care. They just see good journo, bad journo or whatever. Um, but so it's, funny it's, with sport though, isn't it, age? Because like we always think, I think of sports people as being adults. But certainly growing up, they always present themselves as being, you know, they just seem so old, you know, even though they're not like, you know, mostly in their twenties or thirties. Right. But as you're sitting watching these sports people, cause they're the, the heroes, you know, the modern day gladiators, they just seem, and as a man, I know there's that point where you're that first time you're older than the captain of the Australian cricket team, you realize that you're old. You're like, <laughs> they did the cull in Hobart a couple of years ago. And I was like, damn it. I'm the older than the entire Australian test team. And I was only 30 at the time or something. I was sitting there going, this is not okay. Right. When did this happen? Well, now the young players, like, you know, Sam Walsh, I'd be like, if I met Sam Walsh, I'd be like, what do I talk to this kid about? <laughs> you know, I could have a kid who's his yeah. age. I don't know anything about Fortnite. What's he into? <laughs> it's so true. But I mean, you talk about women in the industry as well. It's really um, got a lot of parallels to, to comedy as well. I mean, as much as I was told I couldn't talk about footy, I was told I couldn't be funny as a kid. Like, you know, that's just what the kind of things that girls were told. She, you know, Corinne Grant, who you worked with a lot, I remember my brother's going, she can't be funny. She's a girl. And I was like, whatever. Like music, so many things like this um, that women were just told, no, nah, you, you're just not, well, why not? Well, you're just not, you're not funny. Okay. <laughs> it's amazing to me that like really only in the last, I reckon it's only, and I bet it still happens by the way, but only in the last three or four years have they stopped every comedy festival doing an article about are women funny? Oh, it's... A, a, you know, there used to be, I think Beck Hill it was who uh, said it perfectly, but you know, every c female comedian will tell you the story of being asked, you know, what's it like being a female comedian? Yeah. And I understand I've essentially asked you, what's it like being a female sports but journalist? But it's the landscape, really. It, you know, and, but as... Yeah, Beck said famously, she said, well, it's basically just like being a male comedian, except you get asked that question more often. <laughs> it's <laughs> and so like, true. It's a good point. Uh, so but it is. You just need to see it to be it. And I think that what people don't understand is I, you know, I grew up on like Anderson's Road, Denison, 250 people where I'm from. My dad's a farmer. His dad was a farmer, you know, my brother's a farmer. Um, but the reason that I thought that I could do this was when I turned on the TV and saw people who did this. They looked like me. Mm -hmm. And so if you see it, you think you can be it. 
the importance of representation in giving people that opportunity to go, oh, well, maybe I could be that, is completely undervalued until you see it. Mm. And what we catastrophize so often, whether it's, you know, oh, women can't be funny and then now suddenly, like if you wanted to name the top five Australian comedians at the moment, probably five out of five of them are women. You know, um, if you want to look at the world of, you know, AFL, some of the best, you know, reporters working in the game on all sorts of levels are, are women. You know, like we look at the the gay marriage debate, the same-sex marriage debate, you know, all those arguments about how the sky was going to fall in <laughs> and people had married their dogs or whatever. And like, it's it's happened and it seems to me that life's pretty much exactly the same <laughs> as it was, except we're not discriminating against a whole group of people now. So... Uh, talk to me about what you think the power of representation means. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's huge, and having the support. And I often talk about the fact that when I was when I started, um, I felt like women were kind of pitted up against each other a lot, and it still happens to an extent. But I think women are better at going, nah, just because we're both girls, we still we have completely different skill sets, completely different strengths, completely different personalities. It's not neither or here. You hire us both, you know. And I think that's kind of getting a lot better. And because of that whatever word you want to give to it, the sisterhood, whatever, has gotten better because women are sticking together and supporting each other um, far more than than ever before. And I've tried to be really, really strong on that with girls who are coming. And, and anyone who's coming through that's younger than me, I always say, you know, let me know if you want to talk or whatever. But particularly with girls because I, I, I want to be for them what I didn't feel like I had enough of myself. And until, like we spoke about the way that I – grew up compared to the way that my niece is growing up. And, you know, she plays Auskick. She's the oldest of four, three little brothers. She plays Auskick and her brothers now play Auskick because their big sister played it. So in their minds, it's something that they wanted to do because their cool big sister did it. So it's completely changed just like that. But the generation above us is still the bosses and they still have the mentality of when they were kids, which is even worse than when I was a kid. So until the bosses are people who are sort of our age you know, in those spaces and our way of thinking and then so on and so forth. It's not going to truly change until there's a real representation of of women, gay, you know, whatever in, in those spaces. It's not going to truly change. And hopefully it just keeps getting better and better and better. What do you think the, I mean, I think the bosses is a really good argument. You know, I see it, you know, we both walk, walk in worlds where, you know, without pointing to anyone or any, you know, system in particular, you see that there's a generation now that has very quickly embraced, for, for example, just to use an example, the AFLW, I think is a really good example because at the moment I could almost make a snap judgment about somebody based on if I asked them about AFLW <laughs> and what their opinion is, yeah. you know, because I think that anyone who has an open mind sees that it's probably one of the greatest things that has ever happened in this country and the opportunities for what it will give to people just right across our society. And it's a bit like the laugh. Why does it make you so angry? Right. <laughs> it's like, what is it doing to you? Yeah. You it, don't like it. They're not playing it in watch. your backyard. <laughs> they're not coming around to your house. They're not going to make it <laughs> compulsory. Not <laughs> they're not taking away anything from anything else yeah. to put into Oh, sorry, we've shut down your kid's school because we had to find some money for the AFLW. No, there's no downside. So it's a bit of a Rorschach test in some ways. But it's not just the game itself. It's the opportunities that it gives 
to the commentators around the game, the coaches around the game, the podcasts that start talking around the game, and then the different ideas and opinions that you suddenly get that aren't just like, I mean, I, I think that we make a mistake when we think about it as being a separate thing, but the contribution it makes to the game of Australian rules football in general. Say. The male players who have been exposed to the ones that have had clubs, you know, AFLW clubs, the feedback is only positive because all of a sudden they see these people who are there for the sheer joy of it and the love of the game and the opportunity just to do what they wanted to do and they didn't think was possible. And that has really infiltrated the male side of the club because they're reminded, you are so, you know, this is great. This is good. You know, be happy. Enjoy this moment. It's celebrate goals. Like the AFLW players celebrate goals so much better. Like you can just see how much it means. It's it's everything that they're fought for just to get to that moment. And it's going to get exponentially better, by the way, because people my age, Aaron Phillips' age, you know, um, were forced to give up the game at 13. Now the generation coming through, the Chloe Malloy's, these, you know, Maddie Press-Barkers, these these guys have never had to give up the game, so it's going to get exponentially better from this point forward. But that's a side point. I just, it's good for the game. It's just good for everyone and reminds everyone about the sheer joy and why we love it. And it's got to down the track also be just amazing for society in general. Mm. Because, you know, AFL is a sport that, you know, has had a great representation in its audiences, in the people who go to watch AFL of both female and male you know, like, yeah, really good mix, but only half of those people were able to actually play the game, you know, and now this idea that, you know, the women are going to be able to play the game. It's going to feed into audiences for women playing football, but it's also going to feed into audiences for, for men playing football. It's going to feed into audiences for football. And I think that the one thing that at the moment I still, I often, it's almost like women's football is for women to watch. There's still a little bit of that. Like once we can get over that idea that like, no, they both should be in the same way as the AFL M is, you know, kind of 50, 50, you know, women and men audiences. Yeah. When the AFLW is also 50, 50 men and women audiences, then I think that's when we've really nailed it. Yeah. And like I say, these kids growing up now are not going to have that stigma. I mean, my, my nephews will live in a world where their sister plays and their auntie is a broadcaster on it. So, I mean, that. Obviously, that's not necessarily the norm, but it's it, it just changes everything. And I find maybe it's just because I've been in the game long enough, whether it's cricket or footy, um, that people, you know, in players know me now or whether it's because the players coming through are actually far better. Um, they're so much more respectful and they're so much um, more open and, yeah, they're, they're just – I think they also – are a very different lot of guys coming through right now where they're not scared to talk about their feelings and their vulnerabilities and what scares them. And, um, and I think to be honest, like that makes guys of, you know, our parents' generation more uncomfortable than the women. They're like, what are all these guys talking about their feelings for? But once again, I think that's only a good thing for everyone. The more we sort of acknowledge and, um, and discuss those sort of things, the better we're all going to be because we'll understand each other better. So you lash at me, out at me not because I did something wrong but because you were feeling a certain way about a certain thing and it triggered that. And then I go, oh, okay, I get it now. You know, all good, whatever it is. If you understand stuff, it's so much easier to deal with it. 
Okay, that's that's we, we've talked about um, that, and you know, <laughs> the psychologist. I want to, I want to, I want to talk about some other things as well. So I don't want to just, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure you get asked all the time about, you know, women in sport. Women in sport. So I'd love to talk to you about some other things. Um, how do you balance? You're very busy. How you, you know you you have a lot of jobs. I can still fit in Game of Thrones. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, now you can. Obviously, for ages you couldn't. Do I don't you, have a relationship, so I get to <laughs> Game of Thrones fills that space. Do you ever do you feel worry? You're just like, oh god, if I end up with a partner, I'm not going to get through season seven of Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh, I think I'm more worried that somebody is going to come out and kill him because all of a sudden they care about something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is it? Uh, that, uh, well, how, how do you manage a work and life balance, I guess, is, you know, it, it is wrapped up in your answer, you know, your joking answer there. But, you know, at the moment, you're very much in demand. Um, you know, you're a person that people, you know, want to you know, get involved in their projects. Um, you know, I imagine there's a huge temptation to, you know, take every opportunity while it's there. How do you choose what to do, what not to do, how to balance those things in your life? I think you have a far more inflated opinion of my life than what's actually going on. I'm not, I'm not really, um, any of that, but, um, I, I mean, I've always worked really hard and I, and I decided that this is what I wanted to do at, you know, the age of 14 when I realized I was too slow, too short, not talented enough to play basketball for Australia. So I would watch it for a living instead. Um, so every decision that I've made since that point in time, major decision where I lived, you know, all of those sorts of things has been about getting to this point in my career. So I've always been very narrow mind, single minded in, in that way. Um, but I've never let it stop me from ha- from experiencing different things. So for example, you know, I was working at channel seven in Perth. I was there for four years. It was a really good job for somebody of my age. Um, but I decided the way things were, I was never going to advance there. And I didn't want to get stuck and, and not take the chance that some people go, I've got a really good, safe job in a really tough industry. So I just quit and I moved to Sydney and I didn't have a job and I just gave it a crack. Um, Talk us through what that's like, because to some people listening, they would find that terrifying. The idea of, you know, you've, you've dreamed of doing this thing, you know, you've set, like you said, from age 14, you've decided... I want to do this. You've suddenly landed yourself at one of the major commercial networks. Um, you know, you're essentially at least got your foot in the door. So talk us through your state of mind and how you made a decision like that and how you just decided I'm going to pack it up and move. There were a couple of things that happened that I was sort of starting to realize what was going on, but then there was a couple of other things that happened that really cemented it for me. And I decided I, I know how I'm viewed now and I want, I want to go harder than this. I want to give it a go. And if I fail, then I fail, but I'll back myself in to do something, you know, else it'll work out one way or the other. Um, so I had, I was 24, I think, and I, I had a mortgage as well. So (laughs) I did have to actually think about that. I was most scared about what my dad was going to say, not because he's scary, but because he's so reasonable and Mm. level-headed. And I, so I quit my job. I met a couple of people in Sydney, the boss of Fox Sports News and also the boss of Seven in Sydney and just said, look, I'm going to move over. Do you think there's some shifts for me? And they went, well, don't quit your job for this because we can't promise anything, but sure, we'll give you a couple of, you know, I did producing at Sunrise 
um, and a couple of shifts at Fox Sports News and stuff when I got there. But I remember my dad at the airport when I moved in 2010 to Sydney and he just said to me, and, and like I said, he really doesn't say a lot. And, um, he sort of pulled me aside at the airport and said, I just want you to know, I'm really proud of you. Um, if you, if you get there and you, you need financial help, let, let, let me know, but I, I want you to know I'm really proud of you. And he started crying and I then started crying. I was like, ah, you know, but, and then I got there and he actually, he, he put a thousand dollars in my bank account and I sent it back to him and I said, I love you. And I know what you, I know this is your way of looking after your daughter, but I need to do this on my own. I promise you, I'll let you know if I get stuck. Um, and so I'm really lucky that I've got really supportive parents who just went, no, you, you go for it. So, and I landed a job in Sydney at Fox Sports News in within a couple of months, full-time job. And then I was presenting by the end of that year and, um, did a year of presenting and then Fox footy launched and I ended up down in Melbourne and I've been here since. Have you, uh, do you have a favorite sport? I'm really, like I'm, if, if, if left to your own devices, what is it that you love? To play basketball, to report on, I'm really, really lucky that I think that cricket is my favorite when I'm working on it. And then I think that AFL is my favorite when I'm working on it. Okay, so I'm in the, the most amazing place. Yeah. Like when I'm on cricket, I'm like, no, nothing's better than this. This is amazing. I don't want it to stop. And then I do footy and I'm like, oh, I forgot how footy was and how fun it was. And, but I can't do either all year round. A trade period drives me nuts. I hate it. I can't stand it. It's not like journos froth over it, not me. And I think maybe it's a female thing, but I like the stories. I don't like the speculation. Um, I like the personality and the, you know, the hunger and the relationships. And um, I, I listen to all of uh, NAB Trade Radio. Yeah, you and be all over it. I love Trade Radio. and uh, But the one thing that you will never hear on Trade Radio, a female caller. <laughs> <laughs> like you'll listen to two weeks of trade radio. I don't, I don't know what it is. And because like, like we've said, you know, AFL itself supported, you know, 50, yeah. 50, but you know, trades, there's something about it that men are obsessed with trades and women could not give a shit about it. Men always have lists. Name your top five movies. Right. Name your top five, you know, players. Name your top number one draft. It, like it's hilarious to me. My brothers always did a list and I had no bloody interest whatsoever in lists and comparing and all that sort of stuff. And I think it's that same sort of part of the brain. Uh, <laughs> that is, it's interesting though, isn't it? It's like just yeah, a weird, really like, interesting insight into I'm what like, it tell is. Tell me when it's done. I don't care where he might go. Yeah. Tell me where he ends up. And then oh, we'll I'm that. much more interested in where he might go. <laughs> In the same way as like, I enjoyed watching Avengers Endgame, but I enjoyed the months of speculation about what was going to happen in Endgame almost, if not more. <laughs> I think that's my Game of Thrones thing as well. I think I like the speculation, but um, uh, okay. So cricket, let's talk about cricket because it, it's footy season, but I, I World Cup's coming. love cricket. Mm. Like I am, I am a massive AFL fan, but I think that if I had to toss a coin, I'd like cricket is my one absolute as a game just absolutely love cricket and this time in Australian cricket is just so fascinating mm. to me because obviously yeah we've got the world cup coming up but also the ashes and yep. we've got the return of you know David Warner and Steve Smith and you know speculation over you know who who'll end up being in our our team uh, what excites you most about what we have coming up in the world of cricket 
I the thing that I love most about cricket is the stories, um, and that's why I love Test cricket the most out of all of them. And when guys often say to me, "How do I get my wife in, you know into cricket? How do I get?" and I tell her the stories, tell her why what this this guy has overcome and and what he's facing, and you know who's battling for that spot. I mean, nothing rivals it. I don't think in, it's amazing because it's this really interesting concept psychologically of an individual sport and a team game. Um, from a journal point of view, I love reporting on it because it's um, they're, they're sportsmen, they're not athletes. You get athletes, you know, you you get the, the guys like Pat Cummins who could play any sport in any space and be amazing at it. But you also get, you know, like Steve Smith, who's pretty fit at the moment, but he's not, you know, he's never had a six pack or anything. No. Or you get Aaron Finch, who up until only recently quit smoking. And, you know, I remember doing my first interview with him a few years ago after he got a ton at North Sydney Oval and um, and he was had a burger and chips, a beer and a dart. <laughs> I just thought this bloke is talking about playing for Australia. So, you know, I love that about cricket because they're really normal human beings and um and you get to know them a lot better i've got a lot more close friends who are cricketers than um than footy players because you travel with them you're often staying at the same hotels as them um you know you spend all day at the nets with them and in training sessions you have more conversations than what you would at you know footy or whatever footy it's such a it you know they're not robots but it's like it, it every every single inch matters, whereas in cricket there is still that old school approach to, you know, if you're a twelfth man, you probably drink the whole test, and you know, you often have a beer or a wine or whatever. My one of my great friends once described Test match cricket in particular as physical chess, and I think that that's very much what I like about it is that the stories are so much part of the game, and if you yeah. don't understand the stories, then I can understand why somebody would go. Oh gee, this this game is you know boring. It's over five days, nothing much happened. But so much of the game of cricket is about what's going on mentally. Yeah. You know, the idea that this player hasn't scored runs for yeah. you know the last four tests, or the idea that they've just you know had three overs where they they couldn't get a run, or the fact that this all these stories are actually so integral to the actual sport that's being played. You yeah. can't almost understand the sport without understanding understanding the stories around the sport. And that's what I said to Cricket Australia, and I think they know it themselves, that with everything that was going on, people felt so disenchanted by, you know, even my dad sent me a, a text message to say how hurt he felt by what went on. And I said the the problem is that if something like that happens and then you have all these kids coming through or whatever, nobody feels connected to these guys. They don't know who they are, what their stories are, whether they like them or not, whether they're a hero or a villain um, all of these sorts of things. And so you need to have them be accessible and tell their stories and be the personalities that they are. And, and then what you get from that is, you know, Marcus Harris, who is this great guy who's talking about, you know, his grandma giving him $20 every time he made a, a first class ton or, you know, three school years would give him 20 bucks every time he made a ton that continued until his first class. And, and then he ended up making a ton in the Shield final and, you know, and dedicated it to his grandma who had passed away a few weeks earlier. Those sort of things are so relatable. And I think with cricket in particular, and I, I mean, I spoke about earlier today that, um, you know, my Nana loving cricket and my memories with her, a boxing day test. And, and all of us in Australia are like that. It infiltrates our family and it, you know, we watch the boxing day test and then we go outside and we play backyard cricket, um, 
and it means so much to us. And that's why everyone took it so personally because the, it it's it's our families, it's our values, and more than anything in a in a country like Australia where we are obsessed with sport, but we're split by two codes really. Um, cricket is what unites us and it does it around Christmas time. And that is why everyone felt so personally let down, um, by what these guys did because they seemed to forget that they were representing all of us and we didn't want them to win at all costs. We wanted them to do us proud. Do you think that we had let, that we let them down as well? Um, you know, I, cause you are a, an empathetic person and was the reason that they didn't know that we didn't want them to win at all costs because the message that we give them a lot of the time is that we want them to win at all costs? Have we forgotten to ourselves as fans of the sport to, I mean, obviously we did once this happened, you know, there was a real reset of going, no, 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 we don't want you guys to be a win at all costs team, whatever it takes. That's not what we want from our cricket team. We want you to try your best and we hope that you win, but we want you to try your best and do it in the right way. Had, had we let them down to a certain extent? Maybe, but I, I also think that a lot of people in the Aussie public didn't like the way that, for example, David Warner went about his business already. It's not like it came out of the blue for someone like him. You know, I think a lot of the Aussie public were already saying, you don't need to do that. So I, I do think there was a level of understanding there already from the Aussie public of, no, we don't want to be known as that. But I also get very, very defensive of the Marsh brothers um, because I do not understand the vitriol that is thrown their way. They're two of the nicest people that you will come across and such a lovely family. And I understand that having the last name helps, but it also hinders. And I don't, these guys have never said anything publicly negative or derogatory to anyone ever. You know, I mean, Mitch Marsh summed up in a second is him being named as a 12th man for his home test um, at, at the Perth Stadium, the first test at the Perth Stadium. Clearly, he wanted to be playing in that. It was, opinion was divided whether he should or shouldn't have been after being the all-rounder at the MCG and, you know, and and, um, and doing his role. Um but then he's the 12th man and then he comes on the field when I think it was Aaron Finch had, had a suspected broken finger and um, and Mitch Marsh went up to the umpire and gave him his baggy green as though he was going to open the bowling. Like that is Mitch Marsh. You know, he wanted to make his teammates laugh and the country laugh at his own expense. Um, that's him summed up so beautifully and that's why he's so popular within the group and I get really frustrated I understand that the Aussie public get frustrated because the numbers don't stack up or whatever, but get angry at the fact that there was no one else there knocking the door down. Don't get angry at these guys getting opportunities because no one was taking their spot. Uh, I've been guilty of that. I'd like, I certainly am one of those people who was, uh, you know, the Marsh Brothers. yeah, well, I certainly was like <laughs> thought that Glenn Maxwell should change his last name to Marsh to, <laughs> to get the same opportunities that they seem to be getting, but it, it's never because, and I think this is the one thing that is interesting about the, our relationship with the cricketers is that you don't ever wish them ill. Like sometimes you get frustrated at somebody not you know, being able to perform, but once they do, I think we're very quick to then turn around and embrace them. Totally. And I, you know, I said this recently in an interview, the only thing that Australians love more than the pylon is the comeback story. Yeah. I believe that. But at the same time, Mitch Marsh had this, for the Ashes, Mitch Marsh had the second 
best average. He only played in the three tests because he wasn't in the team for the first three, fought his way in. He had the second best average in the Ashes after Steve Smith. Sean Marsh had the second most runs in the Ashes after Steve Smith. That wasn't that long ago when when people then started bagging them afterwards as well. So people also very quickly forget the things that people do. I think that's true. And it's so this uh, with the redemption story of our you know Australian cricketers now because that's the phase we're in now. They've gone through the suspension and now they have the opportunity to you know re- represent the country again. Um, do you feel like we're ready? It feels to me that we have a sense that we're ready to welcome them back. I mean, the best thing that they can do, you know, David Warner and Steve Smith in particular, is to just play well. You know, if they play well, you know, that that success will, um, you know, help us re-embrace them. Do you think, I think that Australians are in general pretty forgiving of these sort of things. And it feels to me that most of the public, because at the start, I never thought David, I thought David Warner would never play cricket for Australia again. The reaction to him in particular, I was like, Steve Smith will play again. A, he's too good, and B, I don't think people blame him directly for what happened. They blame a level of culpability as captain that he should have stepped in, but they don't blame him directly. He'll come back. But I would have thought at the time David Warner never would have played for Australia again. Now, he's going to. Um, Do you think we're ready to embrace them all back into the game? going to be really interesting. I mean, the World Cup is one thing, but the Ashes over in England, if you think for one second that the journos in England haven't taken notice of the fact that JL, Justin Langer, um, was a bit snappy during the summer, um, they will go hard to try and get him to snap and get the players to snap. They, they're relentless, you know, the press pack over there. So it's going to be very interesting to see whether it is all rosy as we're being told or whether it actually, there are still a few cracks in there. I mean, it is a bit like a relationship that if, if somebody cheats on you, you know, you can say you're over it, but it's always there. You know, I'd imagine if you look at married at first sight and all these things, Game of Thrones, I've never been che- Well, I've never known that I've been cheated on. Well, it's probably like one of those things. I stay out of relationships. It helps. <laughs> it's probably one of those things where it's like, if everything's going well, you're not thinking about the fact that they cheated on you. But if they don't do the dishes, you're like, and you cheated on me. Yeah, you know, like there's that. There was so much that... And these guys, you got to remember, cricket is, uh, like, I don't think we appreciate as a public how much, uh, yes, they earn a lot of money. Yes, they're living an amazing life. But take Mitchell Stark and Elisa Healy, for example. They're playing for the national teams, male and women, and they don't see each other to the point that sometimes they try and meet up in the same airport that they're transferring to the next place so they get a few hours together. Like, this is what we're talking about. The human cost of being a a cricketer these days, they might get two weeks in their own bed in an entire year. I don't think we understand that and how hard that is and they're living with each other and or or they might be best mates with someone and then that person's cut from the team and they don't see them for the next year. You know, it is – full on as a sport and it can get very lonely. And I w- often said, whilst, for example, when Darren Lehman was in charge, 
It's amazing that he put family first. That's great. Don't get me wrong. That's awesome. But how does a Joe Burns feel when he finally has his dream come true of getting a baggy green and he's into the team and he doesn't have a girlfriend and he doesn't have kids? And so all of this camaraderie and emotion of being picked for Australia actually means that he's sitting in a hotel room by himself for a vast majority of the time because everyone else is with their families. That's the kind of reality that no one speaks about and no one acknowledges and I'm not sure if Joe would see it that way, but that's an example that I, you know, while I'm reporting on the sport, I sit there going, how does that guy cope? Um, and I know it a little bit because I'm, I'm a reporter that did, you know, six years of it with Fox Sports News and I just traveled by myself. So, um, I think the reality of what it's like to be a cricketer is very different to the way that we perceive it to be. Uh, and so when the cracks start to show, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff and, and also, the, and I, I don't think anyone really comprehends how hard the death of Phil Hughes was for these guys. And they went straight from that into a World Cup campaign on Aussie soil and it just kept going. They never have time to reflect and except for when they're standing out in the field in 40 degree heat. You know, there's so much that this particular group of guys has gone through. It's actually quite enormous when you think of it in one you know, one little neat picture. The death of Phil Hughes isn't, uh, yeah, I, I actually do think about that quite a lot because I actually ran into Phil Hughes the the day before he died, the day before he died, I think it was, or two days before he died. Um, they were at the SCG and I used to have a, an office at, at out the back there at the Fox Studios and um, I was talking to somebody else and, and Phil was there. I didn't know him well at all, but I just said hello that day and, and I often, if I walk past that gate where I saw him that day at Fox Studios, if I'm ever in that area, my mind immediately goes to it. But I'm not in that area all the time. And he wasn't one of my best friends or a person that I worked with all the time. Now you're talking about a group of people who were best friends with him. You know, they're the best friends. He was the guy that everyone said. He, like, he was the best man at everyone's wedding. Right. Everyone felt like he was their best mate. That's, yeah. He's that guy. And... They have to work in the workplace where he died. Yeah. So doing what, doing he, what did. he did when he died. So not only are you, you would have to be reminded of it. I'm reminded of it and I didn't know and him. And they don't want to forget about it as well. Nor, we need Nor a, would you, you want know, to, like, right? And, but the other thing is that you suddenly realize as much as they all, I guess, realize that they are playing, you know, you've got a, a small hard ball that's being, you know, uh, hurled at you at a you know, very high speeds. So I, I know they all know that it's dangerous, but I, I'm not sure that any of them would have thought I can die today at work until that happened. And now forevermore, that thought's got to be in the back of your mind that, you know, one of our mates died doing this. We also, when we do this, are taking the risk that we could die. Yeah, and and even if you take all of that away from it, it's just losing a mate like that, you never get over it. I often say that you learn to talk about it without thinking about it, but the moment that you think about it, you are right back when you found out that that person died and and and, and you never move on. You never move on, really, truly. Um, and that's what he was to these guys and he was such a um, – such a charismatic guy and, um, not, not to take it back to me, but 
being a sports reporter is really interesting in, in that moment because as a general news reporter, you don't tend to, I mean, if you're doing a specific round, maybe it's different, um, you know, police or politics or whatever, but generally speaking, you're meeting all these different people at all these different times and the stories that you're reporting on, you don't know the people, you know, have just died in the car crash or whatever it is. When you're a sports reporter, you know them, you, as I say, you're often at the same hotels with them, you know, you live through it with them. And, um, that, yeah, I, I've actually had the misfortune of having to report on a few deaths or being around, you know, for people that I know. Um, and yeah, that will stay with me forever standing outside the hospital, having to do those, you know, half hourly, hourly crosses, um, and being surrounded by mostly general news reporters who, who understood, but didn't quite get it. And having to watch, you know, my friends walk in and out of that hospital, knowing then, never going to see him again. So uh, we've got about 10 minutes uh, left on the time that we have together today. Um, it, it's take We've got to a place that we talk about on the podcast anyway. We normally finish by, I, I normally like to ask the guests how they feel about death, whether death is something that um, is present in your mind, whether you think about your own death and whether you have, I mean, it gets the broader question being, what do you think happens when we die and how does that affect the way that you live your life. So to sum up, that's basically what I'm looking for. Sure but you. yeah, I know. It's like well, you know, look, I, I like to finish. I like to save it to the end. I don't like to <laughs> I don't like to lead off with it. You know, it's a hard to, you know, change direction after that. But um do you think about death? Is it something that, you know, is present in your mind? I mean my dad was a doctor, so I probably was aware of the reality of it fairly early and I lost a couple of um, one in particular, good mate, but, but three kids from my year and three separate car crashes. And we were only 16. I'm now 33. So these people were a part of my life for less time than they haven't been. And that's a really interesting place to be in. Um, so I understand death. I understand the, the finality of it and the impact that it has on families and particularly coming from a country town. Um, but where do we go? I, I was once told, um, well, I was at, I think I was at school or uni. Um, somebody said that they were scared for me cause they were quite religious. And when I said I didn't believe in anything to the point that I don't even like to use the word atheist because then it's still a label to do with religion. I'm just not religious. And they said, I'm scared for you. I said, okay, you be, you be yeah. scared for me. That's fine. Good. Someone <laughs> you, is. Yeah, I don't do have to that. be. <laughs> My theory is if there is a God and I get to these pearly white gates and he doesn't, or she doesn't let me in because I, I didn't believe in him. Well then God's a bit of a prick yep. because I reckon I've been a pretty <laughs> decent person and there's a lot worse that do believe in him. <laughs> so yeah, I, um, I think anytime you think about death too hard, it gets a bit it gets a bit much because I think um, at the end of the day, it sort of renders, renders, renders all of us who are doing jobs like ourselves, which is essentially entertainment, a little bit um, like irrelevant, I suppose, because in the great scheme of things, what are we contributing? But at the same time, I'm like, well, what's the point of it all if you haven't enjoyed watching the footy and had a laugh? Well, what do you think you are contributing? Because obviously to do what you do with the passion that you have for it, you you, you need to think that what you're doing is important. Now, I don't mean, you know, big capital I important necessarily, but you have to find what it is that you think is important about what it is you do to do it well. So 
this is a safe space. You're allowed, you're allowed to, you're allowed to actually, you know, talk about what you think you do about your job that is important. What, what is it for you? I always said that mum and dad did stuff that made a difference to the world. So it gave us a leave pass. <laughs> now kids will have to contribute again. Um, I think, uh, from a, you know, broader point of view, telling stories, humanising athletes, bringing those great stories into the homes of people that really, you know, care about them, whether it's on a superficial level or a, they need a break from their own lives. You know, it's that, that great thing that when there's a recession, everyone seems to spend more money on sport and entertainment because they need to be distracted from the world. And I think sport is, you know, that's the wonderful thing about what I do, that even when it really, really matters, it doesn't actually matter. And that's why we love it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I also, from a more specific point of view, would like to think, and we spoke about it a little bit earlier, that just like the women that have come before me, that the stuff that I've gone through and the experiences that I've had, um, that the next lot of girls won't have to, and, um, and it might make it a little bit easier for them. That's what I hope. I hope every time that I have a moment where I go, is this worth it? Do I want to keep doing this? I'm not sure I can cope anymore. I sit there and I go, I have to, so that the next lot don't, don't have to. How would you like to be remembered? God, it's such a wanky question that I ask all the time. <laughs> That's a good one, isn't it? Cause you always get someone saying something. Um, I, I often say that people's best traits are their worst traits. Um, I'm really honest and loyal and, and it gets me in like, it's the best thing about me. It's always also the worst thing about me. Um, but, but I would like to, it just, it just a really good mate is how, whether it's, um, whether it's to people I don't know very well who have come across me and said, she's a good mate or whether it's to people that I've known my whole life, that's to me, I think if you've sort of made somebody's day better or more thoughtful or enlightening um, and not focused on the negatives, then I think that's that's a pretty good way to be. Uh, if you had uh, the opportunity to have a moment of your life over again, you know, take something back and do it over you. again. Uh, I, 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 the first part of the question is always, would you do it? Or are you one of those people who's like everything that's happened, you know, led me to this point. I won't change anything. Or we've got the magic time machine. You get a moment for a do over. Does one come to mind that you'd like to do over? I really only have one major regret in life and I'm not, I'm not going to share it because it, it's stupid and it doesn't mean anything to anyone else. Um, and it's very personal and it's to do with the mate that died. Um, but the, from a broader sense, I mean, the worst thing about me is that I, I, I know when I'm about to do something and I try really hard and I, the older I get, I try harder to go, don't, don't be short with that person or don't be, you know, not rude, but dismissive or whatever it is, like small talk and things like that. I really suck at it and I know I suck at it. So I try to not put myself in those positions because I don't want to make somebody feel bad and I don't want to be rude or anything, but I, I've tried so hard to change it and I still struggle with it. And I don't know whether that's just because like I say, your best trait is your worst trait and that's just the way that I am. And, and I will always be honest. Um, or whether maybe at some point in my life, I will actually get better at it. I would like to, but even when I recognize it in the moment, I, I still really struggle.
Okay, last but not least, uh, this is and this is you know, final question, and we're going to get him with like a minute to spare. We'll be all right. <laughs> It'll be fine. we right up to the line on this one, but that's okay. <laughs> Technically, we've got three minutes left. We'll be all right. If I, if I just get to the question, we have time for the question and the answer <laughs> and the plugs at the end. It'll be fine. Uh do, do you think that uh, – and I ask everyone this question, by the way, just because it always feels like – a the, love or a relationship question? Well, no, it always feels like it's the most pointed question, and I always like to point out that – You've already asked me about dying. Yeah. Well, this one I reckon is – well, I find this more confronting. It probably says something more about me mm-hmm. than it says about you know the people that I ask it to. But uh, do you think that uh, people have a misconception about you, and what would it be? I always ask this question as well. Um I, re- I I don't know because I think I am – I learned a couple of years ago that being vulnerable is really important. I think um, when you're – particularly when you're a female, you sort of, you know, you just, you just keep – you just have to keep going and have a really thick skin. And I worked out a couple of years ago that I um, – that I suck a little bit about uh, – uh, like that I thought I was being um, – self-effacing or whatever, but somebody else was thinking I was being arrogant or whatever it was that I, I think sometimes I feel really uncomfortable about the position that I'm in and even being in this situation right now, I don't think my story's interesting. I don't think I'm interesting, but at some point you need to recognize that you can go and talk to students in a classroom and maybe have an impact because otherwise everyone's just going to think that you're an arrogant flog and, um, you know, you can... So being vulnerable, I think, is a big thing that I've learned. I'm not sure whether that's a misconception, but I think people probably have it pretty spot on with me. Sometimes I can be rude and sometimes <laughs> I can be annoying and, um, yeah, I'm, it's just what I'm like and I, I'm not a lot of people's cup of tea. All right. Well, you're my cup of tea and I definitely could have uh, talked to you for hours. Let's do this again sometime. This has been really brilliant. I've really enjoyed it. And there was a whole heap of things that I would have loved to ask you about, but we've run out of time. Um, let's do the plugs. And what happens is you'll do the plugs here, but then I'll also you know, do the plugs in an intro that I'll do separately. So, cause you know, just in case not everyone makes it to the end, <laughs> I like to, <laughs> I like to get the, will. I like to get the plugs away early <laughs> as well. But, um, obviously one of the things that you're doing is you're doing the footy show, um, the AFL footy show, uh, which, uh, my dear friend Limo, uh, you know, is also involved in. So, you know, I've been taking a particular interest in that, but, um, so you've got the footy show, which moves around a little in the schedule, but you can, uh, find that on channel nine. Now you've got Fox footy commitments as well. Yeah. So I host, um, AFL tonight on Mondays and Fridays, which is a news program do on the mark, which is a great passion of mine telling the stories of, of players on Wednesdays at eight 30. And then I'm on the boundary on Saturdays, most Saturdays. Which... And I imagine if you've got like a Foxtel go or one of those sort of things, you can probably watch those things on demand as well. Yeah, absolutely. You can catch up on all of those. And cricket. Will you have cricket commitments later in the year? They'll tell me. Okay. You um, not yet? Okay. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, okay. Um, but yeah, uh, I assume a similar sort of role, but yeah, throughout the summer, just boundary on, on Fox Cricket and absolutely loved it. And anything else you want to plug? No, I don't think so. All right, done. There we go. We're done. And look, it's 2.59 and we had to be done by three. So we've, <laughs> we've done it perfectly. Thanks for listening. 